Now, if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews chapter 13. Our subject tonight is a fitting end, a fitting end. And uh, you should be able to deduce from that that I now come to the conclusion of Hebrews. It's taken us seven years and three months. But here we are at the end, finally. So, verse 22 through verse 25. So, Hebrews 13, verses 22 through 25. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, or even better, those who are from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Amen. Now, the writer to the Hebrews, as he comes to the end of this great epistle that we have been considering together for quite a number of years, you will notice that he calls it uh, a brief word of exhortation. A brief word of exhortation. And at the same time, you'll notice that he urges his readers to bear with his word of exhortation. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, verse 22, for I've written to you briefly. And I like that little word, bear. It means to endure you might put it this way, it means to put up with what I have written. So as he comes to the end of this great epistle, he desires that they would just stop for a moment and reflect on everything that he has said to them and that they would bear with it. And uh, you notice that he calls it a word of exhortation because that essentially is what the writer to the Hebrews has been engaged in from the very beginning. From chapter 1 and verse 1, his whole aim, his whole desire has been to exhort these Hebrew Christians to write to them in such a way that, that they hear what he is saying, that they understand the dangers that he has pointed out to them, and that they respond accordingly. So that's why he has written, I've written this brief word, I, I pray almost as if he says, that you will bear with the word that I have given to you, that you will put up with it. And notice in verse 22, he uses this word, I appeal to you brothers. And that word simply means I beseech you, I exhort you, I urge you, I implore you to just stop and bear with what I have written to you. Now, you know, if you say things over and over and over and over and over again, after a while, people say, yes, I think I got it. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews has done. He has essentially repeated one theme throughout the entire epistle. Yes, he is concerned with the high priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, he is very concerned with Jesus. In fact, all that he says in the entire epistle centers in who Christ is, the Son of God, and what Christ has done. His accomplishment in satisfaction for our sins and his atonement and his ongoing ministry as our great high priest. And so he urges them, he beseeches them to just cast their minds 
back on this great subject that he has talked about. But his theme that undergirds all of that is out of his great concern that he has for the spiritual condition, the spiritual welfare of these Hebrew Christians. He wants them to persevere. He wants them to continue. He wants them to go on in their faith. And so this is why he has written this this epistle. Notice he says also in these closing verses in verse 23, he tells them that Timothy has been released. And Timothy, of course, we know very well, Paul's great associate, uh, and he obviously was imprisoned for a time, and now he has been released. And you'll notice that he refers to him as our brother Timothy, which implies that it would appear that Timothy is well known to these Hebrew readers that the writer is writing to. And so he, the writer, he writes to these Hebrews and he hopes to see, along with Timothy, the Hebrews when he comes to them. He says, verse 23, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So he's anticipating that he will be able to make a visit to these Hebrews that he knows so well and that Timothy will be with him and that they will see one another soon. And he sends, you'll notice in verse 24, he sends his greetings, greet all your leaders and all your saints, which implies that he is not with them at the present moment, that he is away from them, and that he writes to them instructing this greeting to all your leaders, those who have authority in the church, and to everybody in the church, to all the saints, he says, uh, I send you greetings. So however many saints there are, to all of them, he sends his best wishes. And notice at the end of verse 24, greet, or yeah, in the end of verse 24, greet uh, these Italians, those who come from Italy, send you greeting as well. And I think he probably means just simply the Italian believers, those who are from Italy, they send you their greetings as well, which may imply that the writer to the Hebrews is near Rome or in Rome, Timothy's been released, they'll get together and somehow they'll come and see these Hebrews that he knows so well. And then you'll notice his, his great conclusion in verse 25, grace be with you all. He means, of course, the grace of God. No other grace. Just the grace of God be with every one of them. What a way to end the letter. Grace from God poured out on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrated as coming only from God through the gift of His Son, He says, may that grace come to all of you. So what we find, I think, when you look at those closing verses, is just simply a warm reflection by the writer to the Hebrews of a deep fellowship and relationship that he has with these Hebrew Christians. Now, you cannot write as he has written to them unless you feel confident that you have some sort of hearing that's going to come from those to whom you're writing. And the writer to the Hebrews uh, seems to indicate that he is part of them, one of them. He's been away from them. He feels like he can write to them. And he's written to them in some very beautiful passages <clears throat> and also in some very sharp passages warning them of their position in their faith. And so there's obviously a very good relationship between the author and between the Hebrew readers, and it would appear that it goes both ways. So there, there are advantages that the Hebrew 
the writer to the Hebrews recognizes, he makes use of the advantage, he writes to them, and he instructs them as he has done. And he has written to them, I think, when we look back on this great epistle, he has written to them with solemn authority. He has, he has resolved himself finally on the person of Christ and on the work of Christ, that he has demonstrated that Jesus is superior in every way in his person, and that Jesus is superior in every way in his work, and having established that Christ is to be exalted uh, by them in their hearts and minds as the means or as the way by which they must persevere and progress in their Christian faith, he has done it with all the authority that comes to one who, it would appear, writes Holy Scripture for sure in this book that we have. He's confident also, having written in such a way, that the Hebrews will listen to him, that they will respond to him, that they will listen to his exhortations, that they will listen to his warnings that he has given to them. Sometimes when we are in relationships with one another, we might hold back in warning our brothers and sisters for fear of maybe it'll make them go further away from where we want them. Maybe it'll affect them because they'll react the wrong way. The writer to the Hebrews doesn't worry how his readers are going to react. He only aims at one reaction that they listen to what he says because it is of paramount importance and it is of an incredible necessity that they hear what he has to say. When somebody speaks sharply to someone else, it's never pleasing to be on the, or nice to be on the receiving end of sharp rebuke. And at times he's had to rebuke them. He's had to say such things as, you must watch out that you don't have an evil, unbelieving heart like unbelieving Israel. That he compares them to Israel is one thing, but he warns them of having the same heart, of being like them. And so he's very direct, and he speaks very passionately to that. He must be able to feel that he can do that because he's confident in the spiritual condition that the, writer, that the readers, these Hebrews, have given over and over again. So, as he comes to the end and he calls this my brief word of exhortation, there's so many things that make up the epistle to the Hebrews that uh, he includes in this exhortation. And I say he's written with authority because he does expect his readers to comply, to listen, to hear, and to do what he says. And isn't that what we all must do with the Word of God? Whenever we read the Bible, whenever we listen to the Scriptures, we must realize that it is from God that this message has come to us, and therefore whatever we hear, whether we like it or whether we don't, is not the issue. The issue is we should do and we should listen to God when He speaks to us. And not just a, a hearing, as if you listen with your ears, but it doesn't affect you. But no, what the writer to the Hebrews desires is that in their listening to everything that is written in this brief exhortation, that they would implement, that they would take up the solutions that he recommends, and that they would pay attention to what he says, and therefore, as he does say in chapter 10, preserve their souls. Keep themselves safe. So, this relationship that he has between uh, the readers is a very good relationship, a wonderful relationship. And the fact that Timothy was free was good news because they are in a hard situation themselves, these Hebrews. They are suffering for their faith. They are struggling. They have seen their properties seized and taken. 
and they've been persecuted for their faith, and yet they have joined with suffering Christians and identified with their fellow believers in their suffering. So they know something about affliction. They know something about suffering, about hardship, about trouble. They know these things. So to hear that Timothy, who was undergoing a similar persecution or affliction or suffering, has been set free, would have been good news to their ears. And of course, good news is such a wonderful thing, isn't it? In fact, Solomon says that good news... Uh, refreshes the bones. You feel it, right? Deep within you. It's something that does something to you. And true, I think, spiritual good news always refreshes our souls. In fact, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Proverbs 25, 25. Now, having said that, let me remind you a little bit about some of the things, I can't speak of all of the things, so that might take another seven years, but some of the things about this brief word of exhortation that have spoken to me. I mean, for seven years, my Sunday night preparation has just been in this epistle. And so every week when I come, this is what I'm thinking about, this letter. And I'm being occupied with it. So there are things that are, are stronger than others in their, in their stress, that the writer to the Hebrews speaks about. So I want, to, I want to talk a little bit about that. What is the one great danger that faces these Hebrews? It is without question the peril of apostasy, isn't it? It is the, will they give up? I mean, they've come so far, they've professed faith, they've, they've suffered for their faith, and now they are thinking about turning away from that faith, that grace that has come to them because somebody or some teachers have been communicating the idea that Judaism, that they left because they're Hebrews, is superior to, to what the writer to the Hebrews has been talking about, superior to what they have in Christ. Because you see, in Judaism, you can, you can look with your eyes at a temple and you can look with your eyes at priestly garments and see the priests. And you can see the sacrifices. You can take part in all of that. So their worship has gone from a very physical activity, a sight-oriented activity, to a spiritual activity. And now they are thinking about leaving the spiritual activity and going back to that which is easy. Everything is done for them. And they... They can see it with their eyes and the beautiful uh, temple and all of the furnishings of it. Those are wonderful things. And they would know those things because they are Hebrews. So the Old Testament is especially familiar to them. And the writer to the Hebrews has spoken at great lengths from the Old Testament in his letter to them. So the great danger that is facing them is, will they give up? Will they fall away? Will they actually apostatize, which is the nth degree, and there's no recovery from it? Because the writer to the Hebrews warns them, you get on that slope of backsliding, of neglect, spiritual neglect, you go faster and faster and faster down, and eventually you deny the faith, and that's a serious thing. So he doesn't want them to even begin to consider that. If they're truly born again, of course they will not do that. But the danger, spiritual danger exists. It's the same danger for us. You get tired. You feel the pressure of being a Christian. 
There are work pressures, family pressures, life's pressures, all kinds of things that wear down on your spiritual life. Sometimes you feel, I haven't been able to spend as much time reading my Bible as I ought to have read my Bible, and therefore you find a certain coldness uh, enters into your spiritual life. And you know it and you feel it, but you don't do anything about it, and so you go to the next level and you become uh, colder and colder, and eventually you give up gathering together with the saints of God. And isn't that one of the things in Hebrews 10.25, do not neglect the meeting together of yourselves. Let us not do that, he says. Because he recognizes that's how people are. That's how easy it is to drift away. And lest any of us tonight think, well, I would never do that. Well, the Hebrews themselves would have thought they would never have done that. And look how he has to write to them. And in five or six warning passages, he has instructed them again and again of the seriousness against such an action of abandoning, of giving up, of turning away. And those are serious considerations for any Christian. And every Christian, I think, no matter what century, no matter what they face, must deal with that whole question of, of will I fall away or will I keep the faith? Will I persevere to the very end? These Hebrews have wandered like sheep close to a precipice. They have gotten so near that they might fall over, as it were. And that's why he writes to them so urgently, so powerfully, so cogently, that they would stop where they are and just back up a bit and listen to what he has to say to them. Because the danger that faces them, uh, the consequences of the danger, or the things that, that brought about the danger, were that they were considering exchanging everything that Jesus had accomplished for them, and was accomplishing for them. Because remember, we're thinking about Jesus as our high priest. What has he accomplished? He has accomplished sacrifice, atonement. What is he accomplishing? He is accomplishing intercession at the right hand of God for us. That's the ministry of a high priest, to make atonement, to make sacrifice, and to make intercession. So they were thinking of giving up all of that, of exchanging Jesus in his finished work and in his ongoing ministry as a high priest for an old system that was filled only with types and copies and shadows. So they were exchanging the substance for that which was a shadow. And the writer to the Hebrews says, I don't want you to do that, because there are far greater consequences if you do that. So in simple terms, ultimately, when somebody drifts away, it is perhaps because they have exchanged faith for feeling, or faith for sight. What I can see is better than what I cannot see. Therefore, it must be right. And yet in the Bible, faith is that which you cannot see, but yet you are convinced of and assured of. So just because you see something, Thomas, let your faith be that which lays hold of that which you cannot see. Unless I see Jesus, Thomas says, unless I put my hands in those scars, unless I see with my eyes, I'll never believe. Those were his words. How foolish, right? Because Jesus exhorts and encourages those, how blessed are those who have believed and have yet never seen. And what a blessing that is for us. 
So our perseverance then, because that's what he wants them to do in light of the approaching peril or danger of apostasy, their perseverance, our perseverance, is married to the high priestly work of the Lord Jesus, to his sacrifice, his death, to his service or his intercession. So how do you persevere? There's only one answer, isn't there? By faith. We persevere by faith. That's why we talk about the perseverance of the saints. How do the saints persevere? They only persevere by faith. They never persevere by sight. In fact, they never advance one single step by sight. But they advance a great deal to heaven by faith. And so trusting God, believing God, is what is required. But the question is, can we, the Hebrews, can we ourselves, can we trust God? Can we believe God? Can we believe this word that we have received? That we have received? Well, it depends, doesn't it, on what you mean by faith. What is it that we mean by faith? It is the Hebrews 11, 1 definition, isn't it? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. So the things I hope for and the things I cannot see, faith latches on to them and faith believes that. And it is that faith and only that faith that pleases God. That which you cannot see. And yet we so often, because we live in this world that we do today where everything is visual. Everything is thrust before your eyes and you see it and you say, well, look at that. That must be something. And yet when it comes to the faith, it's unseen. It's trust in what God has said, what God has communicated. And not only that, but this is a faith, according to Hebrews 11, that is a faith that believes, number one, that God exists, and number two, that God rewards all those who diligently seek Him. And then he makes the startling statement in Hebrews 11, verse 6, that without faith, it is impossible to what? Please God. You want to please God? There's only one way you can please God, and that's by faith. Not by works, not by anything you think you can do in righteousness. You only please God by faith, by believing Him, by depending on Him, by trusting Him. So in Hebrews, this epistle to the Hebrews, faith is essential to perseverance. So the preventive for apostasy, the danger of falling away, what will guard you against that, he says, is to believe, is to have faith. Faith that originated in saving faith, and a persevering faith that goes on all the way to the end. And it is a faith that only centers in the, G the Lord Jesus Christ as we find in the scriptures given to us. Now, you know, the writer to the Hebrews, he's gone to great lengths, I think, to, to say that nothing compares with Jesus. That there is no comparison to Christ. You've got all these Old Testament shadows, all pictures in the Old Testament, symbols and types and all of these copies in the Old Testament. Nothing of those compare to Christ. So he's reminding them that in this comparison that he is giving them of Jesus and everything else, nothing compares to who Jesus is and nothing compares to what Jesus has done. And by the way, that still stands true for you and tonight, me tonight as believers in the Lord Jesus. When I think of all the ways Jesus is superior as you find here in the epistle, perhaps the supreme way 
uh, of the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ is found, I think, in the very first verse of the very first chapter. That Jesus is a superior revelation from God. And everything else is types and shadows and copies, but Jesus, He is the real thing. He's truly a better word. Do you remember how that the great chapter begins then? Long ago, God spoke to our fathers in many ways and at different times by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, and the Greek text simply says, in son. We say, by his son, or in his son. How has God, in the last time, spoken his word to his people in his son, in Jesus? And so, revelation in the Old Testament and revelation in the New Testament is very, very crucial and important because when we talk about revelation we simply mean that God has made himself known God has shown himself God has revealed himself and one of the things that we need to understand when we consider revelation is that it revolves essentially around three focal points and the first of those focal points is that there is the idea in the Bible of a verbal message from God in a way or in a form that we, human beings, can receive and understand. In other words, God has spoken in His Word to us in words that you can understand and I can understand. It's a verbal communication in the Word. So when we talk about the idea of revelation, that's what we mean on one level. That God has revealed Himself by using words, a verbal form, a verbal way, to show who He is so that we can understand and we can uh, believe. Now, because I speak English, if you speak to me in Chinese, I'm sorry, I'm in the dark. I need some revealing to take place, some translation, some help to show me or to make me understand. This is what God does in a verbal communication of revelation. He is simply coming down to our level and making known to us His Word, His message that we can understand, in words that we can grasp and understand. That's the first focal point. This is a verbal message that has been revealed. Second, there is the idea, isn't there, that unless God speaks to us, then there remains hidden these divine things that belong to God that we could never know or never discover by ourselves unless God actually shows us and reveals it to us. So unless God speaks to us, things remain hidden for us. If God never gave us the word, what would you know about God? We need revelation to know God. We need the Word of God to understand who God is and what God has done. And if God didn't give that, then we would be in the dark. We would be unable to know and receive and believe. Thank God He has shown us who He is. Even some of the deep things which we still grapple with and seek to understand, God has shown us and revealed Himself. The third thing is there is this idea, isn't there, and this is the great idea, that God has intruded into our existence. That God has come into this world. That God in the flesh has come into the world and made himself known, or as the Apostle John loved to say in that first chapter of John's Gospel, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
We saw him, John says. What word? The word that was in the beginning. The word that was with God. The word that was God. That which was outside of time, outside of history. That which was eternal, invaded human space, time. God revealed himself in Jesus. And so, if anyone wants to know anything about God, then what better place than God's revelation of himself in his word? And as the writer to the Hebrews thinks about, and as the Apostle John thinks about, this word is eternal. He's from outside of time. And he makes known God to us. It's as if he says... Oh dear Hebrew readers, as I write to you, you have come to know Christ. You have believed the gospel. You have believed in Jesus. And now somehow you are thinking of going back from Jesus to a previous word that manifested God's dealings and God's promises in shadows and in types. Why would you go back to an inferior revelation? Glorious though it was, but nothing in comparison to Jesus. Why would you do that? Why would you think about that? Don't do it, he says. Don't do that. There's a reason why we have the Word of God, dear congregation. Tonight, there's a reason why we have God's Word. It is to lead us to the God of the Word. Everything about preaching is designed to draw people to God. To show them God, that you can trust God, that you can believe God. And sometimes it's very difficult in preaching to, to communicate the idea that, that this is what God desires, that this is what God seeks and craves, that we enter into relationship and fellowship with Him. How will you do that? Through the Word that has been revealed. And it is to lead us to God. This preaching, this reading, this brief word of exhortation. Come to God, to the God who is the Word. Is what he's saying. You know, theology is often thought of by, I think, many, many Christians as abstract. Or as that which belongs in ivory towers or in academic institutions. That's theology. Now, occasionally you come across a book that says systematic theology or biblical theology, whatever it is. But you know what the word theology is? It's theos and logos combined. It is God and word combined. So that what you're studying when you study theology is the word of God. God as the word. And there's another word that we, we talk about. Theophany. Theos and epiphany. Or phanea. The appearing of God. God appearing as the Word of God. So that theology is really a theophany of God revealing Himself to His people. That, I think, is what the writer to the Hebrews has just brought in the very first chapter. Opened their eyes to see Jesus, this appearing of Jesus as the supreme revelation, who is the Word from God, the only Word of God. Don't abandon Jesus. That's what he is saying to them. So the writer to the Hebrews reminds his readers that Jesus, who is the ultimate, who is the superior, who is the final revelation in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. He is superior to even angels. Why is he superior to angels? Because angels worship him. 
Because Jesus has a superior or a better name than all the names of all the angels. In fact, in that very first chapter, angels are said to be ministers or servants of God. They just do the will of God. But this one who is the revelation of God, he is the Son of God. Equal with God. How do I know he's equal with God? Because in the very first chapter he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and forever, right? And you, are the, you laid the foundation of the earth at the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They may perish, but you remain, and your years have no end. That's Jesus. Who is God? Who is this revelation? Who is this word? You see, dear congregation, this is what the writer to the Hebrews just puts to them over and over and over again. That Jesus is the ultimate Savior. Not Moses, who was a Savior, who was a deliverer, and great deliverer though he was. Who led a people of God out of Egypt, who brought them to the promised land, to the edge of the promised land. But Jesus is way beyond Moses, because Moses is a servant in the house, and Jesus is the son over the house. Or to put it another way, Moses reports to Jesus. Just like that. You see, Jesus is the ultimate Savior, not Aaron who's the first great high priest or great pre high priest in the Old Testament. A man who was, the writer to the Hebrew says, beset with the same kinds of weaknesses as his people. Who can, because of those weaknesses, empathize and sympathize with them. By the way, that's why Jesus became flesh. So that he could sympathize and empathize with us in our fallen humanity. Humanity. Not our sinfulness, but our humanity. He became human. And so, Jesus is superior to Aaron because he himself, Jesus, is the sacrifice and not like these other sacrifices of bulls and goats and so on. Jesus is the ultimate revelation, not Joshua, who brought only a temporary rest. But Jesus is the Sabbath rest of God. Jesus is the one who gives rest to his people. You see, dear beloved, our Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is our great, merciful, faithful High Priest, is the one who has passed through the heavens for us. And therefore the writer to the Hebrew says, let us hold fast our confession. If that's what you believe, hold fast to your confession. You see how... He urges them to keep on. Since you've got such, a, such glorious themes in revealed in Hebrews, since you have a glorious Christ, hold on, press on, persevere. This is on his heart and on his mind. Because they're thinking about stopping. And they're thinking about giving up. They were in danger, he says in chapter 2, for example, of neglecting so great a salvation. And how did they neglect their salvation? They were drifting away from the message they had heard. How important is it to read your Bible? It's very important because if you don't read your Bible, you start to drift away. You forget the things of God. So he says to them, look, don't neglect this great salvation. Don't drift away from the word, from the word that you have received, that you have believed. 
And be careful that you don't become like that old Israel who had an unbelieving heart and had a hard heart and rejected God's word for them as a people. And so he says to them in the great chapter, chapter 6, where he talks actually about falling away. He says in that great chapter that they should show the same earnestness and have the full assurance of hope to the end. Chapter 6 and verse 11. In other words, don't be sluggish. Don't be imitators. Now, you know, I find it's easy to be sluggish. It's quite easy to be lazy. It's quite easy to neglect spiritual things. Because spiritual things are a discipline in one sense. To read your Bible, to pray to the Lord, to be regular, to be, is a discipline. And that's not an easy thing to do. And yet, if you are sluggish in those things, you may rest assured that you are sluggish in other areas as well. In fact, your God will be reduced and will be coming down when Satan comes to tempt you. Fill yourself up, it's as if the writer says, with the Word of God. Fill yourself up with Christ. Be imitators like others who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. Chapter 6 and verse 12. It's not only because Jesus is this Word that makes Him superior, but it's because of Jesus' work that He is superior. I mean, what did Jesus do? As far as the writer to the Hebrews is concerned, well, the writer to the Hebrews will tell us that he entered, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by his own blood. So how do you, how do you get into the presence of God and how are you accepted by God? It's because Jesus has entered there as the sacrifice. And the writer to the Hebrews says the result of that was that he secured an eternal redemption for us. And he has appeared at the end of the ages, the writer to the Hebrews says, once for all, to put away sin in the sacrifice or by the sacrifice of himself. Because by that single offering, one-time offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Chapter 10, verse 14. Aaron couldn't do that. He had no hope of doing that. Only Jesus has done that. Bulls and goats, lambs and calves cannot do that. We need the blood of Jesus. We need the sacrifice of Christ. So he says to them, by the time he gets to chapter 10, don't throw away your confidence in these things, right? You have need of endurance, chapter 10, verse 36. No, let us not be like those who shrink back, fall away, give up, and are destroyed, but let us be like those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's the last verse of chapter 10. And then to explain what faith is, he goes into chapter 11, which is all about by faith, by faith, by faith. So by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. By faith, Enoch was translated to be with God. By faith, Noah did what he did. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. By faith, Joshua. By faith, Rahab, the people of God or the people of Israel. By faith, Samuel. By faith, David. By faith, Jephthah. By faith, Gideon. And what more can I say, he says? By faith is how you get to the end, to glory. Faith 
in these things you confess. Hold to them. Don't change them. Don't mess around with them. Believe them. Hold them for yourself and don't shrink back from them. If Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant, then you should know that his sprinkled blood speaks a better word. A better word. So see that you do not refuse him who is speaking to you. See, it's all about this idea of God speaking to us. Instead, let us go to Jesus, as we have seen right here in chapter 13, who is outside the camp, and let us bear his reproach, verse 13 of chapter 13. And let's join him, and let's keep on seeking that city that lasts forever and ever, that Abraham sought for, because he was looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. Let's seek for that city, the city that is to come. And let's continue to offer up from our lips a fruit of praise, a sacrifice of our lips of thankfulness and gratitude. And let us serve this Jesus with glad hearts and joyful hearts so that we will be spiritually equipped for every good work, as chapter 13 verse 21 tells us, which is the result of the eternal covenant, the blood of the covenant that was stipulated between father and son. When you do those things, the writer to the Hebrew says, you please God. Pleasing to God. That's just the brief word of exhortation, right? In a, a little nutshell. Now, is it important? The one thing that I think it does is it keeps us all together. See, that's what he wants for the Hebrews. Don't you start drifting off, and don't you start drifting off, and don't you have your ideas and go along that way. No! Keep us together, Lord. Keep us together, right? I look at, at Bethel, at our fellowship, and I ask myself, why is it so rich? Because it is rich. Why is it so sweet among ourselves? Do you know why it is? It is because we treasure these truths about Christ. We treasure Jesus, right? How rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord, His blood, our ransom and defense, His glory, our reward. So when I say these things, this seems to me to be a fitting end to this epistle, to the Hebrews, to this great letter that he just calls a brief word of exhortation. And so as he ends, he says, Grace be with you all, with all of you. God's grace be to you. Because you see, dear brothers and sisters, it is the grace of God that will enable you to persevere, that will keep you as you believe what he has revealed to us. It's God's grace. And so just like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the ancients were on this life of pilgrimage to a eternal city, so we too in our pilgrimage in the 21st century, let us do exactly the same. Do it by faith, by believing, and by confessing these truths. And let's do that until God brings us to himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great epistle to the Hebrews, written so long ago for our comfort, 
for our encouragement, for our strengthening in our faith. Help us, we pray, to be men and women of faith, to believe the good news, to trust the gospel, to trust our Savior more and more. We thank you, Father, that you have made known to us your way of salvation through your Son, through your Word. And we love your Word, and we want more of your Word, and we want to believe your Word and confess your Word. So, strengthen our faith. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is the superior, final, ultimate revelation from God, that you have spoken to us, Father, in these last days by your Son, who is the heir of all things who is the exact imprint and radiance of the glory and the nature of God, who by himself made purification for our sins. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this letter then that speaks so highly of Christ. Now we pray, Father, that we might take all these things that we've learned about from Hebrews and meditate on them so every time we read the epistle to the Hebrews we would remind ourselves of these glorious truths. And we pray that you'd send us out into the world to be your people, to be faithful and to be godly. Help us to be a thankful people and help us to be a people motivated by your grace to each of us. That you have been merciful to us and gracious to us. You have saved us by grace. And now we pray that you'd strengthen us in our faith and lead us onwards and bring us to our heavenly home when we shall see Jesus as he is, we shall be like him. So Father, we commend ourselves to you now and thank you for this Lord's Day and the things that we've spent time uh, dwelling our, filling our minds with dwelling on these holy and heavenly truths. Now bless us, we pray. We commit ourselves to you and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, may the Lord bless you and give you a good week.